and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Abby Davis. Abby is a creative, but you could also call her an artist, a craft maker, musician, and teacher, to name a few things. She documents her craft works on her blog, Crafty Lady Abby, teaches classes for Richmond's Art 180, and sings with the space punk band, League of Space Pirates. I had a great time talking with Abby and learning about how she approaches life and making things, as well as diving into her views on the world around us. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. This interview is split into four parts. This is part one. Enjoy. So you do a lot of different things. Um, yeah, so I make lots of different artwork and crafts and music. So it's hard to describe exactly what I do and say like a one sentence description or a um, proper title. But, um, right. Yeah, so I'm a crafter, I guess, because I do lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And this in part is kind of separate. Um, Does that make your life difficult? And not being able to, like, kind of nail that down? Um, it makes it hard to explain to people. Yeah. Because people are curious, definitely, because I make so many different things, and I'm not known for just one particular medium. It does make it um, a challenge to explain to most people, like, I do this, and then, like, I work for this website, and I do this other thing. And it gets confusing, yet they're fascinated, so I guess that's good. When did you get into, like, making things? Like, what was the impetus for you to get into that? Well, I grew up in a house where that was pretty common. Um, my mom was a calligrapher, so she did basically fancy writing. My dad helped her with the framing and um, adding of all the pieces that she did. Aside from that, she made lots of other things, jewelry and made cakes and whatever she decided to do. So that was a common thing in my house. So for me to go from that childhood to it being a career isn't far-fetched. Mm. Do, you, do you get like a, is there like a sense of, um, like I guess there would be kind of two motivations for doing that. One would be like a feeling of accomplishment in doing it or one would be like a feeling of like expression in doing it. What of those two, what do you think um, is more? So I constantly learning new things, and the thing that I've done for the longest is sewing. Uh-huh. I've been sewing since I was four, mm-hmm. which wow. is, yeah, unusual. <laughs> um, aside from growing up in a house where that type of stuff is pretty common, in my family history, sewing is required for everyone to learn, whether you're a guy or a girl. As far as crafting goes, it's kind of a sense of accomplishment of being able to learn and master a new skill and kind of get to teach people how to do the same thing is the reason why I do it more full-time now than just kind of dabbling in it. I want to be able to master the skill so I can show people how to simplify it, go through all of the trial and error, and there's a lot of error. I mean, what people see is obviously their success, 
they don't see all of the stack of errors. Right. <laughs> it did not go well. Um, but that's kind of the lessons of life. Things yeah. Life is not perfect. You're you're going to have many mistakes before success happens. And how do you? You say you teach people. How do you? How, how are you teaching people? Like, what format are you teaching people in? I have a blog that is called Crafty Lady Abby. Mm-hmm. And that is how I started teaching. Um, that's now blossomed from doing product reviews, which kind of goes through how different products work and breaking down how they can be used, which is for a website called Craft Test Dummies. And then recently, I started working for. Um, a company that makes coping supplies. It's mm-hmm. called Fairfield World, and I'm part of their design masters team, um, or master makers, as it's called. And then I teach them how to use their products to create um, various things, mostly fashion-based for my particular taste, but um, you know, household stuff, whatever works for them. And I also teach classes occasionally for um, Art 180. So I'm going to actually start the class next week. Oh, cool. Is that like a paid class? Yes. Um, yeah. What kind of people end up going to a class like that at Art 180, have you found? Like what's so their Art age? Maybe just for um, kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I was confusing that with the visual arts. Yeah, depending on your preference, it can be elementary kids or middle school or high school, and I think my group will be middle school, but I'm teaching them how to take paint and fabric and make uh, quotes in a deconstructed way where it's not a lot of sewing or literally no sewing involved, Um, just using glue and paint and introducing them to how to use fabric as a different medium than, say, just paper or a traditional canvas. If it wasn't for your – I mean, do, you, I mean are, are some, do these kids that come into this class, do they have experience with this kind of thing, or is it kind of like a brand-new territory for them? Some of them have experience. Um, some of them don't, but it's kind of irrelevant of whether they had experience or not. Mm-hmm point of Art 180 is to give the kids an outlet to express kind of maybe some things they're going through in life. Okay. And besides us being artists and being able to teach them an art form, um, we're mentors. So we go over different things um, to help them kind of process what's going on in their life a little bit easier and give them an outlet. So when they are upset or have some other issues, then they have the same we can go back to, whether it ends up being something that I do or there's other classes they offer, things like comedy and writing and dance. So whatever your outlet ends up being may be a lot different than, say, some other kids. But for me, I make a lot of artwork whether it be paintings or sewing or crocheting or whatever it is, mm. that's a, a good outlet for me to kind of de-stress from anything else going on in my life. And is that a after-school program for kids, or is it part of like a curriculum so or something? We partner with the community and schools 
Art 180 mostly deals with schools in the city. Uh-huh. My program is actually going to be with a new school that's called North Star Academy, and they deal with kids that have handicaps. Oh, okay. The majority of the kids in my class will actually be autistic. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot different than something that I've experienced as far as teaching. Normally, I either deal with kids in the city or homeschool kids, depending on where I'm teaching. So this is a lot different, but their experience with art will be unique compared to maybe a kid that doesn't have that setback. Hmm. And so you mentioned you did painting. Um, when did you get into doing that? Actually, only like four or five years ago. Really? Yeah. What, how did you decide to start painting? Well, I actually started working with Noah, who you know, uh-huh. doing Stella Day. So four, four years ago, about. I joined Scholarday as one of the co-editors, and my assignment for the first year of the project where I was involved is to make something, um, make a stall every week using different mediums, and that's when I started working with things that maybe I haven't played with a lot in several years because my primary skill is sewing. Mm-hmm. I haven't needed to focus on painting or any other type of art form, really. So that actually taught me a lot, and I've done a few paintings, mostly the hang in my house, but my <laughs> <laughs> house is very um, creepy, so it's, it's a shock for a lot of people that come over. Oh, okay, so you make a lot of stuff for the house, or? Well, there's large paintings that have skulls on them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> and acrylic and, like, watercolor and... Um, whatever I decided to deal with that day. So that's interesting. I was a late starter to painting as well, and I had many years of uh, just frustration. Did how how was it for you learning that medium? Um, it was super frustrating at the beginning because I, before I joined the project, painting was one of my least favorite things yeah. to do because it was <laughs> so difficult. But I treated it kind of like drawing and like colored pencil, which you can blend. Mm-hmm. I really just had to work at it. I tried different um, types of art, like pop art, which is more like blocked out color. Right. Yeah. And um, watercolor, which you have to blend differently and kind of pick up the colors or add more. And that's really tricky to kind of find that balance. A lot of it's just kind of playing with it, and I didn't have anything else to do. I had lots of free time back then. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've never been able to get on the watercolor thing. That I can do the acrylics, but the watercolor, it just it doesn't work the way my brain works. Like, I, I, I know I have to, like, change the way my brain works, and I just have no inkling to do that. Like, I just have no, <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely a challenge. It's something you have to stare and really be willing to play with. Um, going from a transition of drawing to watercolor, I actually started using watercolor pencils first because you can draw with those and then you can paint over them and you go blend it in. Oh, wow. I didn't even know those existed. Oh, that's cool. A lot of people like this. 
the people that don't do painting but are interested in that or trying to transition from drawing to painting, that's something I actually recommend because it's easier to get into fine details that you may not see, may not otherwise be able to. Right. Um, and you can also learn how to blend and add more color in without having to worry about too much of um, learning a totally new thing. And that concludes part one of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on October 2nd, 2014. of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. Enjoy. You had mentioned you were doing something with a product line. Now, was that for the company that you're working with on crafts, or were you doing your own? Well, I'm currently working for a company that does has their own product line. Okay. Um, that's definitely something down the line that I'd like to look at for design for myself, but it's not something that I focus too much on at the at this moment hmm. because we work in so many different mediums. It's hard to really decide what would be a good product line, what is needed in the industry, um, what would be the most helpful thing. So that's what your criteria is, what would be the most helpful thing? Well, yeah, I, I want crafting to be accessible mm-hmm. and the ability to make art to be accessible. And a lot of times it's kind of daunting for most people, and I like to simplify it as much as possible. And even while doing Scala Day, that's when I started writing tutorials to show people, well, I'm doing this art, but here's how you can do it too, whether it's making, like, cookies or whatever it is I decided to do for that week. Um, that's actually when I started writing tutorials, so I could break down that type of more complex art into something that was more accessible for people. So as far as a product, it's hard to decide between all the different mediums that I use mm-hmm. what is needed to make whatever it is easier or um, more accessible. So, that's interesting because generally, I'll see if you have a thought about this, um, art has been this thing that is cordoned off. It's, you know, it's a fine art, you know, like, uh, who was I? I was listening to some, might have been Saul, no, not Saul Bass, um, designer, Milton Glaser. He had said that if you look at the definition of the word fine, it is to remove impurities. It comes from the Greek, I think, like word for fire and the idea to like mm. burn something and remove – like like in metallurgy where you like remove the impurities to make something pure, like pure mm. – actually, I can't even think of a metal that's pure right now. But like <laughs> whatever metal is pure, I'd say silver, but I don't think that's it because I think it has nickel in it. But um, this idea of this like really refined thing. 
and there's like this really cordoned off view of art is like, you know, almost protective because art could really be anything, you know, like the definition of art is, in my mind is like, well, did you declare it to be art? Yes. Then it's art. You know, like that's kind of how I look at art. Um, and I think to protect itself, it has to like be like, no, you must come up through these channels and this thing. Like, how do you, cause, cause you, you seem to have, um, a background and kind of some, you have, you have formal training and you're, you're saying fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you view like art that, that you're trying to teach folks to do with like the dichotomy of like stuff at MoMA or stuff at VMFA? Like, how do you yeah. think those two worlds work? Well, I think anyone can pretty much be an artist. Right. You have to start somewhere, and you can start at any age. It's, it's not even, a, oh, this guy was successful at 20, and then everyone's like, oh, well, I wasn't doing that at 20, and, and neither was I. Mm. Um, so, I mean, anyone can be an artist. The, the point of showing someone is whether it's formal training and, you know, it's lavish art school where you're paying for it for life, or you find up at... Uh, art place to take a class and sculpture or whatever, art doesn't happen to necessarily be something that's in a museum, but it's definitely, like you said, it, there's this sector where they want it to be more precious than what it is, mm-hmm. and there's definitely times in my life where I look at things like, oh, I can do that. Right. It's yeah. probably not what they want to hear. No. <laughs> that's the same thing as... For me, having a fashion background, walking through a store, being like, oh, I can make that. Um, you know, I'm not saying I can make like a Monet. <laughs> right, right. But, um, yeah, I think that dwindles off when you get into like classic masters paintings. Like that's where like the people, like I think pop art and like Warhol and that kind of stuff um, and like Lichtenstein, where they start using like kind of more like screen printing, like techniques that are like easier to learn. I think that's where the art world started to get kind of like paranoid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like. Yeah, that's definitely true. And you have like graffiti artists and that's a big one currently where people are fascinated. Well, graffiti, we think of it traditionally as this thing that's kind of defacing buildings, but you even have like the Richmond mural project where you're taking what would normally be seen as graffiti, you know, painting a building, mm-hmm. making it this big art form because the people that came are graffiti artists. That's how they started. Right. So getting your art form, whether it be something that isn't normally seen as high art, um, was normally seen as uh, a crime, and making it more well accepted. And the same thing as Warhol was, doing prints of celebrities and screen printing them and really deconstructing what they look like. But that's what he's famous for. He, he wanted to push the boundaries of what art was, mm-hmm. uh, throwing these huge parties and pushing what the scene was at the time. And the 60s is definitely a big turning point of what art was compared to these fine art masters. And then you have, you know, Lichtenstein and... Warhol and um, the like of the other pop artists, that their work is taking 
kind of things that we see on the everyday and breaking them down to something that is artful, but pop art is popular art, so taking popular things and making them art form, um, like comic book pages, not something you traditionally think of as fine art, but when you put them on a huge canvas, you kind of rethink about what you maybe see every day. Yeah, because it's like there's something about that in, in the in the act of like kind of declaring it, whether it be like by putting it on the canvas or something, you're kind of taking this thing that's like normal mm-hmm. and saying like this is something different. Yeah, even looking at um, Andy Warhol's like the big burlo boxes or even yeah. the cans. You look at that, you don't really think much about it. The graphic design is an art form in itself. That's kind of what he's looking back on. Or these are these graphic elements. It is a type of art, though very common and not something most people think about as an art form. But it takes some real inventiveness to make packaging interesting. Um, to make yeah. something so you want to pick it up and be like, yes, I can buy this product. So art, to me, a lot of people, I feel like they only see it in, say, a museum and they don't see that what is actually art is like the desk that was made, you know, the thing you bought at Ikea. Right. <laughs> it's, still, it's still a piece of art because someone had to engineer this thing, um, you know, whether it be a hundred piece, hundred year old piece of furniture or something that you bought from the Swedish people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> form, you know, even clothing, food, things that are so common are all types of art. It's not just the painting or the sculpture that you see in the museum. Um, I mention that to people to kind of break them out of the mold of what art is seen as. You know, yeah. It's from a simple wedding dress, this lavish one, they're all art in their own way. So that's that's interesting because that's almost like reconnecting. It's it's almost like if they exist, if 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 a person exists, thinking of it the other way, and that art is this cordoned off thing, they almost become disenfranchised yep. from the things around them in a certain way. Like they they disenfranchise themselves from being able to appreciate maybe the creative spirit and things around them. Right. I mean, even architecture, the buildings that we use in a regular day without someone engineering it and making it aesthetically pleasing, people just don't really think about that also being a type of art. You know, architecture, you can have these gorgeous buildings and then you can have these more utilitarian ones, but what someone sees as beautiful varies by person to person and me with my experience kind of sees all of that as beautiful in its own way and all of it as art and not necessarily you know the contents of the museum but the museum itself mm. you have the um, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts which got an addition added to it a few years ago that's more modern looking compared to its older style of architecture, but the building itself is an art piece, and that was definitely an intention and design. 
And that concludes part two of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October 2nd, 2014.
I don't know if you've seen this, but it's almost like Legos. Like you can, like this company made this phone and you could like just snap on different features to it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really interesting. And I know there's some like, like electronics projects that are actually like this where kids mm-hmm. can actually kind of teach themselves how to make like different things. And it's just like these building blocks of basic circuits. Like we exist in this extremely like just, consumer culture where where it's easy to easy to buy things i don't think it's like the 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 fault of people or something you know what i mean like it's like it's just where we live it's just easier and and sadly it's like easier to like throw something out and just buy a new one in a lot of cases because they're not really designed to be repaired and you know that kind of thing um like so that's very interesting that you're you're teaching folks how to kind of reconnect with that and it seems like there's been like a big groundswell of kind of relearning things that people knew like 50 to 100 years ago like that were just like yeah that's what you do like almost like a governor somehow in in culture like we've kind of been you know we've we've gone to this extreme end of it now there's like this resurgence of people being like oh wait a minute you can make that yourself or you know, like, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. And you know, the odd thing is for the artisan movement, we actually have to thank hipsters for that because they wanted to be so unique and bring back these old ways. Mm-hmm. And my parents come from farming communities, as do a lot of um, people, or a lot of parents that came from the baby boom. Mm-hmm. And that's where the industry picked up of having to mass market things. Because all of a sudden you had this huge increase of population after World War II. And my dad and my uncle were both born right around there. Um, Literally when my grandfather came home from the war, um, my dad was born. Oh, wow. So, yeah, my dad um, was the last baby. And his parents were definitely older. But the baby boom is a huge resurgence, huge surge of population and so the industry needed to be made well how do you take care of a whole household of kids and you know farming communities you had more kids to take care of the farm right you had other kids that weren't farm kids anymore and you know where are they going and that's when the industry picks up of we need to make more things and they're not going to keep on up with the farm life where you're growing your own crops and you're making your own clothes, and their parents definitely made their own clothes. Um, mm. So my dad's mother, who made clothes, and my mom's mother. Um, but that was common, and I have handmade clothes from both my mom and um, both my grandparents, or both my grandmothers. Oh, wow. um, as much as I've handmade clothes for my daughter, because that's my primary skill, is making stuff. Yeah. Um, Sewing, so she has handmade stuff like costumes and dresses and whatnot, um, as do I for my own self. But the the search of making things again has to do with hipsters. It, it seems very odd because you don't really think of them as contributing much to society other than these kind of oddball people. Mm-hmm. But because they are so strange, they're always pushing kind of artistic boundaries. Mm-hmm. And the artisan things where you have like fancier cheeses now, and 
even the wine in California, where it is now seen as just as good, if not better, than the wine coming out of France. Yeah, that's weird. I was reading about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, it was looked at as this shitty little thing, and then all of a sudden... It booms. Yeah. And you have homesteaders, which are farmers. They are people that, you know, the, the second generation coming from farms, um, you know, where they didn't grow up on farms at all. They grew up in cities because that's where their parents left the farm, right, mm-hmm. the cities. And then, just like me, I have family that still lives on farms. And I'm here. I'm in Richmond because <laughs> the, my parents chose to leave that life and go to a city. So there are people going back to that, to having small farms, to having a sustainable lifestyle, um, even more eco-friendly than maybe their grandparents had. Right. Trying to find these ways in which to have a lower cost life, um, which I found great, and I would love to do that, um, but I kind of like Target. So <laughs> it's hard for me to get away from the consumer culture um, when I... You know, I, I need my art supplies to close by, but um, I definitely think that there's a, there's a big movement of going back to growing your own stuff, which is a lot cheaper, and you're making sure you know where your crops have been. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to the grocery store, you're not sure how old the stuff is, where exactly it came from, how it's been handled, what it's been treated with. When you're growing your own stuff, you know all that. You know yeah. whether you're treating it with chemicals or not. And you, know, you don't always know where the seeds came from, but you know the rest of it. Right. Yeah, well, that you know, that's that's an interesting thing. Cause it, it, I mean, if you look at it right now, it almost seems like like the future could really go any, any other way because it, it, generally we've – when we've learned a better way to do something, we kind of stick with it. Um, and it seemed like mass production farming was working out for a while, but then they did it so badly. (laughs) Like that, that so many things started happening where, you know, um, you know, trying to cut costs, they would, uh, put things too closer together and you started having all these like food, uh, you know, salmonella contaminations and these kind of things or using horrible pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even gets down to the clothing too, because I mean, like, you know, cotton's, cotton's grown and what's sprayed on that. And, um, yeah. Man-made stuff too, like polyester is man-made. Right. And, uh, I think it was there in the seventies. Uh-huh. It was just really stiff, itchy stuff, but it was one of the first um, man-made fibers. So to go from kind of like natural stuff to this man-made movement, everyone was like, oh, yeah, let's get on the industry. And not to say polyester is necessarily bad. It's a lot nicer than it used to be, but they're chemicals. Right. So much of our environment, you know, whether it's plastic, it's, it's you know, chemicals and things like that. And it'll be interesting to see if eventually we go back to something that's more sustainable, less reliant on these things that we're consuming that we probably shouldn't, all these chemicals we can't even pronounce that we put in our bodies. Um, 
yeah, so having the the increase of organic things that are genuinely organic and not just labeled that way right. uh, is great because we're being able to take all these things that we grew up eating not really knowing better, and neither did our parents, nor did um, some of our grandparents know that these things that seem like a great idea are actually harmful and cause all sorts of problems with your body and no one knows that. You know, you rely on what they tell you. Yeah, to a certain extent. I feel like that was great. I'll totally eat that. I was delicious. You just don't think about, oh, that might be harmful. You know, how the cows are raised, that might not be good. You know, arsenic in the chicken feed might not be so swell. So, yeah. (laughs) I've definitely changed how I've eaten once I realized all of that and I tend to eat more vegetables and seafood and don't eat any of the other meat. Very interesting to think about how all that stuff can come back. And, you know, an industry that kind of paralleled that was um, in manufacturing, like for the first maybe 20 or 30 years of manufacturing in the United States or actually maybe even more, you know, we we, we had basically sweatshops and we didn't really respect mm-hmm. Our workers, and then after a while, you know, generally because of tragedies like factories falling apart and people dying in them, and this kind of thing, um, we started to be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should have like better rules about that. And it makes me wonder if like that's kind of the same thing that's going to end up happening here is is that um, just because we can do something, we you know, society might make an ethical line where we're like, no, it can't be like that. You know, we can't just spray crops with all these things. We can't just, yeah. um, I think they're working on that, but you know, what rules is money? Yeah. So what is profitable is what most people are going to go with business wise. Right. And compared to buying something that is organic and buying something that's more mass produced where you're not sure where it came from. The cost is a lot different because when you know where it came from, you're going to pay more. And very much I'm willing to. That's a problem. But the average person is not. So the average person has to go down the aisles where it's frozen and prepared and full of all these things you probably shouldn't be eating just because it's lower cost. Right. Yeah. That's the saddest part about it. We must do all this. You must adhere to a better lifestyle. The cost isn't going to influx. Or, you know, it's not going to decrease until it's kind of like a, a mandated thing that you can't have these things in there. And it's weird comparing the U.S. to other countries. Oh, yeah. I was about to say that. things aren't even allowed in other countries. Even like the European Union, which is huge, mm-hmm. doesn't allow all these things. The U.S. is like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. Right. Well, it's because of our lobbyists. I mean, (laughs) and that concludes part three of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October second, twenty fourteen.
and welcome back to Various Things. This is part four of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. Enjoy. One of the other things you do is music. And um, it's interesting because you do things, I guess, like... I mean, okay, if you just look at painting and music, most of those are – like those two things are, are, are things that someone might dedicate their life to to do. And right. they're one of the many things that you're doing. <laughs> so how did you get involved? Like when did you start doing music? Because you sing and you sing good. Like when did when did you start doing that? Okay. I'm never sure if I sing good. Um, so when I was a kid, I actually – with church regularly, which I don't anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> but I sing in choir, and I sang in like different choirs and chorus in middle school and high school. But from high school, I decided that I would pursue art instead of music. And from when I was seven to when I was fifteen, I played piano, classically trained piano. Oh wow. Which, yeah, no one realizes that unless I tell them um, that I have a piano in my basement, but I haven't played it for since, it, since I was 15, basically. Wow. Um, I took piano lessons, and I didn't like the teacher because I was a teenager, and we didn't get along anymore. Um, <laughs> and she would say write my own music because I was tired of playing box. Wow. I played that for so many years. <laughs> You're going to get tired. Um, so I quit doing music. So a few years ago, three, um, Noah wanted people to help him with a show, Fall Line Fest, and he didn't really have a band to put together. It was him and Kalima, who is a belly dancer, who also sings, and Mike, um, who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty much it. And that was kind of roughly put together to do the show. And I was like, I'll help you do stuff. So I ended up just kind of dancing around mm-hmm. and then helping them with some of the more theatrical stuff that we do now. Um, after that, I started learning the songs so I could actually be more helpful part of the band. Mm-hmm. And, um, due to scheduling, eventually Kalima had to leave. Um, so then it was just me, Noah, and Mike <laughs> for a few years, or for a good year or so. Um, and then we added Bruce, mm-hmm. and then we added Salisbury, I think, in that order, and then you. Um, so that's been like three years. And wow. Noah actually has a background in... Uh, Theater, which I don't think a lot of people know. Um, so we had been discussing costumes and things like that, and so I make some of the costumes and that gigantic flag that's in the back of the set and help put the set together. So if people don't realize, we um, do a monthly broadcast from a space pirate ship. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be futuristic and is in a hidden secret location. 
<laughs> yeah, the story of that always yeah, cracks me up hearing it. That's all we know where that is. Um, so the band was mostly just doing music, and because it is supposed to be futuristic, it's supposed to be do the League of Space Pirates for From the Future. So we make music. Um, we're supposed to be kind of these rebels doing corporate stuff, which is kind of funny because that's how no one I feel about regular life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're both kind of pacifists, but at the same time we're supposed to be space pirates. And my character is actually supposed to be an assassin, which is hilarious, <laughs> which is absolutely hilarious. Right. Because I'm very much anti-violence. <laughs> to be this character, yeah, definitely laughable. Uh, to be the character is not necessarily a stretch. Right. But it's surreal. Right. To, you know, tote weapons and stuff and... Though um, a lot of people haven't seen them on the show, we have quite a collection of right. weapons that I've modified. These things that come from Halloween stores and um, toy shops and whatnot, which I find very weird that those exist as toys um, that I modify them to look more futuristic and real. Yeah. So that's, that's a strange still. Or spray paint and glitter. Um, and also, yeah, now it's more theatrical, and we're playing at the Richmond, uh, uh, with the RVA Con, which will be kind of our first performance in about a year where it's live, in the sense that there will actually be a real audience versus people hanging out on the spaceship. Hey, man, the internet's real. <laughs> the internet exists only in your mind. Um, so yeah, this is mean, the first time our, different. Is this the first time that the Space Pirates have played live, like in front of a... No. no. It's not the first time that we played live. Um, it's the first time in a long time. Okay. Because we decided to do the live from space because several of us have children. Yeah. And though we love our children, most of us, with me being the exception, have much smaller children. Um, so I have an 11-year-old. That's a lot easier to manage than, you know, like the seven and below crowd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and most yeah. of them are much below. Um, so, it's, you know, with schedules, it's hard to kind of plan stuff and have to go through all the promotion, you know, every month or whatnot. But with all mine, all your stuff's right there. Mm-hmm. So, don't have to move everything and reset up. Um, we definitely had a plan in which to do these type of sci-fi conventions where our type of music um, being more kind of like danceable and, you know, electronic stuff mm-hmm. would be more received and also the huge theatrical element where we're from space and from the future, and pirates, and all the stuff that kind of plays into steampunk um, aesthetic would be more openly accepted and maybe more attended. That would be great. Um, Than, say, like the regular crowd at, say, Gallery 5. It's so... Normal people. 
normal. It's so weird that like, I mean, when you think about it, okay, his music is art, and how does that not happen more? Like bands that like actually, because it's it's weird. Like because most rock stars are putting on a persona, you know, oh. but they they have to have it be this more realistic, I guess, persona. And there's people like, you know, like David Bowie with Ziggy Stardust. Like that was probably like, probably the most popular character concept, like music playing thing. And people, even then, like when he first did it, they reacted to it horribly. They were like, what the fuck? You know, you're like, is this not real? Like, what is it? You know? And it's weird because I think, people want to relate to music at some level and they want to be like, Oh, this is, you know, like when you, like if you're listening to some song and it touched you, like, I think if, if people, if you're like in costume or something, like people would like think differently or I don't know, it's some weird realistic demand we we put of artists like music artists, but they're totally not even doing that. Like they're totally in a persona, like most of them. Uh, I think for us, I'm like, um, the war, which is, heavily costumed. Oh, yeah. But their music isn't as approachable as they are those. They're definitely different genres and different aesthetics. But it's the same type of deal where you're playing this character and it may be much different than who you are in reality. Um, you have, you know, Bruce or Rusty who is a big goofball, but he's that way in real life. Um, mm. <laughs> it's a lot different than they are my character who's the big difference between who I am in real life and that. But for us, um, you know, on the spacepirate.org and the livefromspace.club websites where it has our information on there, our names are on there, our character names are. Mm-hmm. So you have the separation of, you know, who we play is who we fit to. You know, we don't break character to, you know, while we're in character, that's it. You know, that, that's right. We are. But there's definitely, you know, there's, there's people like Madonna who changes who she is every mm-hmm. you know, years and has this great change of being kind of more outlandish, kind of punky 80s, which I wouldn't necessarily call her punk, but. Right, yeah. yeah. Painting from kind of this more serene person to there was kind of like this Western thing and this what great you, transition of who she is. What do you think about that? Like, because um, I could go both ways. Like, I can see sometimes is like, like when I was growing up, I thought that was cool. And then when I got into punk rock, I was like, that's like disassociation from reality, you know, like, and everything had to be real. And, and then you realize that like, not really, everyone's still kind of putting on masks. Like everyone's always putting on Absolutely. some kind of mask, you know? Yeah. Even, um, back of my eyes, I mean, like, hmm, that's a lot darker than I'm used to, but there's times where I wore bright colors and, um, really like to talk, which is strange for most people. I mean, my music case isn't just, one thing, and I don't think anyone's really is. But it's strange to see kind of sectors of subculture that are hardcore on just this one thing. This mm-hmm. is the only thing to listen to, and this is the only way of being, and you can't be like this, and you can't like this stuff unless you're this way. It's not realistic. 
It's so weird, yeah, too. Cause exactly, it, where you can only like goth music. And when you talk to people outside of that, who I stay close friends with, that's, their music tastes are huge. And that's why we hang out, because they are real people versus playing down with the character. And it's strange when people, when that's not their job, mm-hmm. play a character. Um, I mean, Madonna is playing characters, and that is her profession. But when you have people that do that as their actual you know, life, their life, that's their social space. Yeah. Great. Yeah. You know, I think it's much harder when when you're younger. I think people take it much more seriously when they're younger. Um, but yeah, you end up. Kind of, so what? Adults, they're so hardcore on the, you must look this way, you must. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. The point of subculture is to break away from the mainstream. Right. And, you know, there's definitely some people where they're going to have more preferences that go classically to the subculture. And I definitely like creepy things, and I like wearing black, and I like soft music, and the reason why I even got into that scene is because I like ravers and techno music, and apparently that takes away my golf card for that because that's not socially acceptable within the culture. Um, but I've gotten told many times that I don't get to be goth because I don't like just that music. Hmm. And, you know, the music is a big part of many subcultures because that's what binds them together. You know, you're liking this music, you're having these um, kind of emotions that match each other. And a big cliche of goth is being depressed. And while some people definitely struggle with that, um, it doesn't have to be every day. You know, it doesn't have to be the super mopey person, because I know some absolutely super happy people yeah. that are, you know, still like the same stuff I do. Um I think it's got perspective. Uh, do you want to play a character or do you want to be realistic? And say if you do suffer from depression, which is something that I've gone through a lot, um, do you want to do that every day? Is that healthy? Right. Under no circumstances is that healthy, and no one would ever think that was. Um, but you have to be realistic. Because if you're playing this character every day in your life, you're not giving yourself enough credit to be yourself, to find who you really are, and to embrace that. And that will make you a lot happier, guaranteed. Yeah. Now, that's what, that's, I mean, that's, that reminds me of when I was a, a kid. I was, I think I was, like, listening to a lot of Nirvana when I was really young, and I, I realized it was, it was really depressing. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm kind of depressed right now, and all I'm listening to is really depressing music. And I was like, I wonder if that's connected that was- in each way. And so I stopped listening to it, and I got, like, less depressed. And I don't think it was making me depressed, but I think it was, you know, people tend to relate with the items that are surrounding them. You know, so, like, if if you're, I don't know, looking at a painting or something, or, or you paint your walls in a room a certain color, like, you're probably going to connect into that a little mm-hmm. bit every time you see it. And I think I was just kind of like connecting into those. Yeah, I feel that way. And if you do that for a while, then it's almost like you're, you're kind of setting up an environment to continually just tap into that. 
and you can use that as a powerful thing and you can be like, I'm going to listen to stuff that just makes me like creative or happy or oh, like yeah. in a different realm. Disney art definitely um, induce immersion. I mean, Pandora is a great tool to introduce yourself to various kinds of music. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your project going on for the future? Is there any things you're planning on doing that you're um, excited about or working on um, that you want to mention? Um, well, I'm figuring out what type of craft books I eventually want to write. Mm-hmm. Kind of a journey of figuring out, well, doing so many different mediums and types of um Motif. What do I want to kind of streamline that down to? And it's a series. I can kind of break it up. Um, and also doing kind of like products. That's, that's a long-term goal. For now, I'm still kind of learning the industry and figuring stuff out. And in January, I get to go to a huge craft trade show, which should help me figure out more of those kind of tricky life decisions. And um, introduce me to a lot more people, which is great because the internet is the way I communicate a lot. So there's other crafters in other states that I talk to often, and I finally get to see them in person. Kind of the downside of the internet life is you connect with people, but you may not get to see them face to face. Having that in real life interaction that's kind of grounding these people you've known for a few years into this person right in front of your face. Yeah, that's so, got to be nice. <laughs> be nice. It's like we've been friends for a while, but being able to see them is such nice um, kind of treat. <laughs> and that concludes part four of our four-part interview with Abby Davis. I had a great time talking with Abby and learning about her work, and would like to thank Abby for taking the time to talk with me. I hope you enjoyed listening as well. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on October 2nd, 2014. Thanks for listening.